Thanks so much for that introduction, Tyler. It's great to be able to be here, and, and, and I really appreciate the invitation as well to be able to come and to speak here at Westview. I, I must admit, though, I'm a little bit uncertain if there's an underlying message here or not from Tyler himself, because he, he assigned to me the scripture passages to read, and he gave me the title of the message. So the scripture passages are First and Second Samuel, and the message title is From Saul to David When Things Don't Go Well. And he wanted me to talk about difficult leadership transitions. And I'm not sure if this is some sort of foreshadowing for my career or if Tyler knows something that I don't know or what. But anyway, I think we're okay. I'll talk more with Tyler about it later. I know that you here at Westview are going through your own process of, of a leadership transition. You've been grateful for the ministry of Dale and Don Medgett, and now you look forward with anticipation to your new lead pastor, Gary Coop. And I trust and believe that this will be a healthy and smooth transition for your church. And Tyler's going to talk more about that type of transition, the healthy, smooth transitions. Next week, he gave me the tough topic about talking about the difficult transitions. Before we, went, we go any farther, though, I thought I'd take a couple of minutes to tell you a little bit about myself. For the, the past four years, I've served as the executive minister of the Canadian Baptists of Western Canada which means that I have a team of 10 people, along with our support and administrative staff, whose role is to support the pastors and the leaders of all 165 churches uh, across the four western provinces in whatever way that we possibly can. So my role is to support that team as they're supporting the churches, to also look at the bigger picture pieces of vision and mission of the denomination, as well as being responsible for the financial aspect, and then connecting with our ministry partners across Canada and around the world. Now, prior to coming into this role, I served as the regional minister for BC and the Yukon for nine years, which meant was that my role was more directly related to supporting the pastors and the church leaders of those 60 congregations that were in that region. Before that, I spent 13 years in pastoral ministry, two different churches, one in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, the other in Coquitlam, B.C., a suburb of Vancouver. And before that, I was a McDonald's manager. Well, actually, there was a fair bit of time and study between those last two, I suppose, but I thought I'd use this to illustrate one of the transitions in my life, at least. I had worked for McDonald's for four and a half years right here in Calgary. I started as a manager trainee. I worked my way up to running my own restaurant for the last couple of years. I was operating a $2.5 million a year business in the 80s when a million dollars was actually still a lot of money. And we had a staff of about 120 people when I was around the age of 25 or 26 years old. I learned a lot in those years. I learned a lot about people, how to deal with people, how to deal with staff, how to deal with customers, as well as a lot about business itself. When I decided, though, that my time at McDonald's was coming to an end and I didn't really see myself doing this for my entire career. I, I convinced myself that with all the experience that I now had and all the lessons that I had learned, that employers would be tripping over themselves looking to hire me. The only problem with that was that nobody had convinced the potential employers that I was really that good. So finally, I got a job selling TVs and stereos, which I lasted in for two whole months. And then came to the realization that I needed an education. Because without an education, I would always be starting out at the bottom again. 
a good lesson learned through a challenging and humbling transition. One of the things to keep in mind about transitions, and particularly challenging transitions, is that there are always lessons to be learned from them if we're willing to take the time to learn. Let's go to the scriptures that Tyler has given to us, the two books of the Old Testament known as First and Second Samuel. No, we will not take the time to read all of them. But if you are familiar with the stories of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, you'll know that what tended to happen is that the people of Israel spent a season where they would honor God for a period of time. They would be highly committed and connected to who God was. And then over time, though, they would start to fall off. And they would begin to worship other people or they would begin to worship idols, which would then frustrate God and usually led to some sort of calamity, war, famine, plagues, that would once again shake the nation to its core, where they would again acknowledge their sinfulness and turn back to God for a period of time. And then the cycle would repeat itself over and over again. I don't say this with judgment or with any sense that I'm any better than any of these people because I too have been shown the power and the grace of God over and over again in my life and yet I still stumble and I still fall and I still get my priorities messed up. Now Samuel, the one who these two books are named after, was a prophet anointed by God to help lead the spiritual well-being of the Israelite nation. This was happening at a time when all other nations around them had kings. And the Israelites kept demanding that they too should have an earthly king. They had God as their heavenly king, but they felt that they would be even better if they had an earthly king. Does something sound mixed up about that? In other words, God isn't enough? Anyway, after hearing their complaining over and over again, God told Samuel to appoint a man named Saul as the king of Israel, which he did. And when he appointed Saul, he told Saul to assemble his men, gather in a place called Gilgal, and to wait there for seven days until Samuel came to him, and then he would give him further instructions. So Saul assembles the men, goes to Gilgal, waits seven days. Samuel hasn't arrived. So Saul and his men are afraid because the Philistine army is threatening to wipe them out. And that's where we pick up the story at 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 8 through 14, that reads this way. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come in at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. One of the very first things that Saul was instructed to do in his new role as king, he didn't do. 
He was supposed to wait for Samuel, but he didn't wait. Instead, he took matters into his own hands, and just as he finished offering those sacrifices, a role that the priests were called to do, Samuel arrives, and Samuel says to him, What have you done? Saul quickly and matter-of-factly says, Well, you didn't show up when you said you were going to. We needed God's blessing through the sacrifices before going into battle. In other words, I saw a problem, I knew how to fix it, and I did. And Samuel says, You disobeyed God. Had you done what you were told, or in other words, had you waited for Samuel's arrival, your reign would have been long and blessed by God, but now your years as king will be dramatically shortened. And in many ways, his years were filled with torment. And with Saul's reign only being about a week old, God began to raise up a new king for the Israelite nation, a young shepherd named David. You might recall David as the young teenage boy who volunteered to go up against the giant of the Philistines, Goliath. You might recall that he was given armor to put on and a spear to put in his hand, but the, the armor was so heavy and the spear so long that he could hardly move, and he took it all off. And instead, he approached Goliath with just a slingshot and a few stones. At the time, David's brothers didn't believe in him. At the time, Saul and his army were there across the valley from where the Philistines were. They were worried. They were scared. They had no plan. They were willing to send this young boy out. They were willing to try anything. So David approaches him with virtually nothing. And when Goliath saw him coming, he laughed. He tormented him. He called him names. And David, a young boy, without flinching, says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have denied. And if you know the story, you know how David flung a stone from his slingshot and hit Goliath in the forehead. Goliath falls to the ground. David grabs a sword, cuts his head off, the Israelite nation then comes down and started attacking the Philistine army who are now retreating in fear. It's a story that, uh, to a point, I would say, is understood by many in society today who don't even know Bible history. You know, on the news, you'll hear commentators acknowledge that when a small company or a business goes up against a larger one or, or a, a few people in a class action suit go up against a conglomerate, it's called a David versus Goliath type situation. It's the small, unlikely one going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the large, much more powerful one. What doesn't get reported, though, what doesn't get remembered too often is that, and, and I think is the greatest message or the most important part of this story that we can take from it, are the words that David spoke to the giant before he slayed him. David knew he couldn't take the giant out in his own strength. But he knew that with God, all things were possible. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David defeats Goliath because God is with him. It's an incredible faith that David has. And then to come back to Saul. 
what happens is that Saul becomes jealous of David. David's become the hero because he took out Goliath. It becomes evident to Saul that David is the anointed one who Samuel told him about, which leads to many chapters in these books describing stories of Saul trying to hunt David down and kill him. And while David eludes Saul, there's even a couple of opportunities that David has where he could have taken Saul out. But he knew at the time that Saul was still God's anointed king of Israel, and he didn't want to do anything that would go against God. Eventually, Saul is killed in battle. And David does become king. And he reigns for many years, even though he too does many things that are completely against the will of God. And many times his actions cost him quite dearly. But David was willing to acknowledge his wrongs, repent of his sin, sought forgiveness for his actions. And David is the one who is often remembered as the one who is beloved by God, even though he had all kinds of inadequacies himself. Transitions are wonderful opportunities to learn. Transitions, transitions are wonderful opportunities for new beginnings. And as people of faith, we are called to seek God and his leading in all of our transitions. When I left McDonald's and I went to university, I was going to go into business. But me and linear algebra didn't get along very well, and me and calculus got along even worse. So then I thought I would go into education, and I would become a teacher. From one year to the next, the admission requirements for the education faculty changed, and all the extra work that I had done in order to, to get in just didn't matter any longer. There was only one criterion, and I didn't quite meet that criterion. So as I completed an undergraduate degree in something that I knew I wouldn't pursue any further, I earnestly began pursuing God, trying to understand what it was that he wanted me to do. I had been encouraged to consider pastoral ministry much of my life. My father and my older brother are both pastors, but I wasn't sure that it was for me. And it began a season of wrestling for me, trying to understand what it meant to be called, what it meant to be called into pastoral ministry. And I spent time searching and reading and praying and talking to significant people in my life until finally, on a Wednesday night, late May 1992, when my wife Bonnie and I sat down and I said to Bonnie, I'm pretty sure I'm supposed to go into pastoral ministry. And she said, I think you are too. And that was in a sense a watershed moment for us because up until that time, Bonnie had also not been prepared to be a pastor's wife. She had always said she'd never marry a, par a minister or a farmer. And so there was a transition time, there was a preparation time for both of us that was needed. That night we created this great plan, late May 1992, a great plan that we would both work for a year, we would earn some money, then we'd figure out where to go to seminary and all. Four days later when we went to church at Bonavista Baptist Church, there was an ad in the bulletin for the job of residential dean at Cary Theological College. When we read the requirements of what they were looking for, we matched it exactly. When I had a conversation with the school, it sounded like maybe we could fit there. When I went to the principal of our former Bible school called the Baptist Leadership Training School and talked to him about it, he encouraged us to apply. 
And we did the application and we ended up having an interview and we ended up being offered the position. And even with that, I said to God, God, there's, you know, there's five things really that have to be done here in order for us to even consider a move from Calgary to Vancouver and figure out how to make all this work. And in a matter of a very few short weeks, those five things all took place. All happened fine. And by the 1st of August, 1992, we were in Vancouver looking back as to what it was that God had done over the last few months in our lives. I needed to open myself up to seeing what God really had in store for me. And once I did, I've never looked back. Each of us has those opportunities to look and to see what it is that God has in store for us. The only way that David could say while standing before the towering Goliath, I come in the name of the Lord Almighty, is because as God had been pursuing him, he too had been pursuing God. As people of faith, we will have many transitions. Some will go the way that we want, some will not. But no matter what, we can cling to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and continue to pursue God and to trust in him. I want to share with you two more stories of transitions. One is one that I dealt with as a regional minister. The other is one that I'm experiencing right now. Just as the transition from Saul to David was extremely difficult, so too was this transition. A pastor and his family had been serving in a church for a few years, and there was some real division among the congregation about the leadership of the pastor. Some thought he was doing well. Others thought he was taking the church in completely the wrong direction. To be fair, they did try many different ways of seeking to solve the differences, but nothing seemed to work. So much so that eventually a church meeting was called with just one item on the agenda. They were going to vote to see about removing the pastor. The bylaws of the church were consulted, and they showed that to remove a pastor, 75% of those present would have to vote to have him removed. So the night of the meeting came, the vote happened, and when the vote was taken, 67% of the congregation voted to remove the pastor. The next morning, I received an email from that pastor, quite excited by the fact that he hadn't lost his job the night before because 75% of the congregation had not voted to uh, have him removed. Only 67% have. And he looked forward to how he would continue to serve the church for years to come. I got to admit, I was absolutely dumbfounded when I read what he'd written. Yes, by the letter of the law, they hadn't removed him, but... You know, as a pastor, knowing that when you get up on a Sunday morning to stand before the congregation and six or seven out of those ten people looking up at you don't think that you should be the pastor of this church any longer, it just it seemed unfathomable to me. And because the pastor dug his heels in and made the story of the church all about him as opposed to seeking and or trusting God and the discernment of God's people, the next three or four months in that church became even more toxic, even more divisive than it was before. Eventually, the pastor resigned, but the damage was done. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not in favor of congregation run, congregations running pastors out of their churches. There will be difficult times with any pastor of any church, and there are lots of resources to help if that were to happen. 
But when that pastor ignored the true message that came from that vote, he made it all about him instead of about the church as a whole. He wasn't seeking God and what it was that he was really trying to say to him in that situation. We need to always be seeking God and trying to understand what it is that he is saying to us in those types of situations. My last transition story for today involves my mom. For the last three and a half years, my mom has been receiving chemotherapy treatments and blood transfusions as she battles leukemia. It's been a long and challenging road. It has prolonged her life, for which we are very thankful, but not without its challenges. And about three weeks ago now, she went into the hospital with an infection. And a couple of weeks ago now, after going through another really rough, difficult spell, my mom decided that she was done and that she would stop the chemo treatments and she would stop the blood transfusions. And thankfully, my siblings and I are all supportive of her and her decision. So this past week, my wife Bonnie and I spent close to 10 hours spread out over four days visiting with my mom as she lives in a different city. She's transitioning as well from life to death. One day while we were there, a nurse practitioner came in and she told us exactly what that meant. She explained that at most my mom has weeks to live, that she will become increasingly tired, she'll begin to experience significant pain, which they will do their best to manage for her, and then she will die. And this nurse practitioner used very clear language, didn't sugarcoat anything, and expressed very clearly that my mom will die. My mom's 86 years old. She has had a personal faith in Jesus Christ since she was a young girl. She's a huge extrovert who's highly relational and has touched so many people throughout her entire life. She's completely at peace with her decision. She welcomes every visitor and every phone call that she gets. She'll eat any dessert that you bring her because she doesn't care about calories anymore. And she does not look forward with fear or trepidation because she knows that she will be going to her heavenly home. My brother-in-law said to us the other day, not only has mom taught us how to live, now she's teaching us how to die. And he's right. I know not everyone's situation is this way. And we're so grateful that mom has the privilege of, in a sense, going out on her own terms. But the reason why she is this way, the reason why she has no fear as she faces the giant that stands in front of her, is because she does so in the name of the Lord God Almighty. She does so in the grace of Jesus Christ. She does so in the peace of the Holy Spirit. Our lives are filled with transitions. Some of them go as planned, others are far more difficult. But there are so many lessons to be learned from them if we just take the time to learn and to listen. I want to leave you this morning with Jesus' words that remind us that no matter what the storms of life that is that we're facing, 
no matter what the challenges are that lie before us, no matter what the transitions we will have to deal with, our hope lies in our lives being built on the solid rock of God the Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. No matter what challenges, transitions you may have that lie before you, may your foundation always be on the rock of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for who you are as God. We give you thanks that our feet can be firmly planted on you and that you are always there seeking us. Help us to be open to seeking you. Lord God, I thank you for Westview Baptist Church and its ministry over many years. I thank you for the transition that they are in now and, and as there's a new season of ministry that's about to begin. We pray your hand of blessing to be upon this congregation. Walk with them, encourage them, keep them. I pray that the pastoral team will come together well. We pray that uh, uh, the new pastoral family will settle in well to a new city, a new community, and a new church setting. Lord God, may you be at the center of all that happens here in this place. And Lord, for each person who is here, we ask that you go with them in their own transitions of their lives. May they go knowing that you are always seeking them. May they continue to seek you and to have their feet firmly planted on you, the rock. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.